Today, what we're going to do is talk about a few recent executive orders in the context of the executive branch. Welcome to Culture Shift, the Barry Ferris Show. We are living in an American culture that has shifted from tolerant to cancel culture, from decent to rude, from optimistic to cynical, and from relatively safe to increasingly violent. But it's not too late. I hope to equip you with a historical framework applied to current events so you can lead and get America back on track for good. Hey, welcome back to the Barry Ferris Show, Culture Shift, where your success is everything to us, and that's depending upon your freedom. Today, what we're going to do is talk about a few recent executive orders in the context of the executive branch. An executive order is when the President of the United States issues a federal directive to the management or the operation of the federal government. Did you know that the POTUS has four million employees? Four million! So an executive order is when the president instructs some or all of his four million employees within the federal government on what they can and cannot do. This includes the 15 executive departments, such as the Department of Defense and the Environmental Protection Agency. This also includes more than 50 independent federal commissions, such as the Securities Exchange Commission and the Federal Reserve Board. Many of those uh, you've never even heard of. So let's go back. When George Washington was president, he issued a total of eight executive orders, an average of just one per year. John Adams only issued one executive order his whole term. In the first 111 years of the U.S., from George Washington to William McKinley, the POTUS averaged 11 executive orders per year, and that includes the Civil War. So by comparison, Trump issued 220 over his four-year term, or 55 a year. The average POTUS executive orders from Dwight Eisenhower to and including Trump is equal to Trump's, 52 per year, from 1953 to 2021. So he was actually about average for the modern era. But the heavy hitters of executive orders, they're all batched together from 1901 to 1953, from Teddy Roosevelt to Harry Truman. Uh, these guys were executive order machines. The smallest of these was more than double Trump's pace. They ranged from 117 per year to an astounding 307 per year. So recently, Biden has made some headlines. And the headlines he's made are his pace of executive orders. In light of all this history, at 29 executive orders in less than two weeks, if he were to keep up that same level of executive orders, he would exceed even the heavy-handed FDR. So naturally, there's some concern. For example, he's requiring non-citizens to be included in the census. This means they'll be included in the apportionment for which areas get more congressional districts. Now, regardless of that executive order, if you're of age and you are freedom-oriented, uh, I think you'll be a very attractive candidate if you're interested in running for Congress in 2022. If you want to run, go for it. Now, another example, another executive order, is allowing transgender people to join the military. So this ban's put in place under the previous POTUS, who was focused on military readiness. The new POTUS is focused on different things. So if you're thinking about joining the military, I still applaud you, go for it, but it will have a feel driven by a, a shift in the mission. Technically, executive order number one goes to Abraham Lincoln when he established a provisional court in Louisiana in 1862. But the current numbering system wasn't actually established until 1907. So if you don't include the first 111 years, we have exceeded 14,000 executive orders. For example, in Executive Order 13,990, among many other things, Biden revoked the Keystone Pipeline Permit. This has an immediate impact 
on everyone. Uh, this is in section six of his executive order, and all the other components of that same executive order are really a smackdown against fossil fuel. Basically, what's going to happen is you're going to end up paying more for gas, and it'll be traceable to this executive order. Before he revoked the permit, workers from Canada through the interior of the United States had a shortcut to get the oil to Cushing. And what they would do is lay this pipe, very safe pipe, to allow 830,000 barrels of oil per day to flow from Alberta, Canada, all the way to Cushing, Oklahoma. Then that oil will flow as it does now from there to the Texas Gulf Coast and wherever else it's going to be distributed. So what that does is keep fossil fuel clean, it makes it cheaper to transport, and it would help maintain America's oil dominance, which we achieved in the last four years. The proponents say it's the safest way to move oil, and a lot of jobs are at stake getting the construction of it finalized. The opponents believe it's going to increase fossil fuel emissions and increase the risk of climate change. The proponents say, hey, you're going to pay, the, you're going to just, you're going to have, buy the same amount of oil regardless of how it gets there. But you're going to lose the construction jobs in the process. And when the oil moves from Alberta to somewhere, it's just going to get there less safely. It, it'll have to go over rail or by semi-truck and it'll have to go to China. Uh, they're going to still sell the same amount of oil out of Alberta. It's just not going to come through this safer way. Regardless of whether you believe in the opponents or the proponents, uh, by simple fiat, that permit is hereby revoked. So where does this power come from? It's a lot of power for one man to make. Actually, there's no explicit constitutional support, but Article 2 does give the POTUS broad executive and enforcement authority. In fact, it states that he shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. So there's really not ambiguity here. He has extensive discretion on how to enforce the law and how to manage the resources and the staff of the executive branch. The executive branch is just huge. In addition, over the years, Congress has given additional degrees of power to the POTUS. He's By legislation, they've made him able to make certain executive or orders. So, as a general rule, executive orders stand. It's important to understand that this power, this, this power to issue an executive order, can't be signed by anyone else. I mean, it's the right of the POTUS alone. He's the commander-in-chief of the United States Armed Forces. He's the head of the state. He's the head of the government of the United States. And he is the only one that everyone in the U.S. has had a chance to vote for. Now, it's interesting, there are still persistent complaints that even if you're under the legal age to vote or legally dead or your absentee ballot arrived before the postmark date or your mail-in ballot was cast by those who registered to vote after the legal registration deadline or your ballot had no corresponding proof that you registered or you cast your vote by absentee ballot without completing the statutory application or you don't even live in the state that you can still vote for the president. But I digress. That's why making sure elections are handled honestly in accordance with the Constitution is so important. A POTUS has a lot of power. So back to these executive orders. How long do these executive orders remain intact? Well, if, if it's not determined unlawful, and if it doesn't have an expiration date, it remains in force all the way up until it's canceled or revoked by a ne the next POTUS. The only real check on this power is the judicial branch ultimately the Supreme Court of the United States. Now, in the past, they have ruled that executive orders have to be somehow connected to the Constitution, somehow supported in Article II, either explicitly or granted by Congress where they explicitly delegate that power to the executive branch. 
Some executive orders have been successfully blocked in the past because they don't comply. Either a federal judge or the SCOTUS declares that the executive order either exceeded its authority or that it just really should be handled through legislation, if at all. So what is this history of, of, of vesting so much power in the executive branch? Well, you know, before the Constitution was ratified, there was this public debate, and it was held really through these uh, newspaper editorials called the Federalist Papers, and they really shed light on what people were thinking. Now, now remember, the Federalist Papers were originally published just as a series of newspaper editorials intended to convince New Yorkers to ratify the proposed Constitution. They were loosely organized around distinct topics and issues, and these papers were part of an ongoing public discourse. The authors were responding to specific criticisms levied against the Constitution by the anti-federalists. These people were primarily, though, primarily concerned with anything that looked like a king. They didn't want that. So in Federalist 69 and 70, Alexander Hamilton seeks to counter claims that the president that's listed in Article 2 of the Constitution w was not just this elective monarch, which is what the anti-federalists feared. So Hamilton points to the fact that, hey, the president's elected. The king of England inherits his position. That's a big difference, and that's true. Hamilton goes on to argue that the president has less power over his constituents than even the governor of New York does over his. So in, in Federalist Number 69, Hamilton says, look, there's distance between the U.S. Constitution and the monarch of Great Britain. The anti-federalists, fresh in their mind, have this British oppression hanging over their heads. And they were opposed to the new government having anything that looked like that. Uh, so Hamilton responded and said, look, the president's authority would be nominally the same with the king of Great Britain, but it's going to be much inferior to it. It would amount to nothing more than the supreme command and the direction of the military and the naval forces as first general and admiral of the Confederacy. So, for example... In maintaining the armed forces, Hamilton argues that the president would have less power than the king. Both the president and the king can serve as commander-in-chief, but the king also has the power to raise and to maintain the army itself. The U.S. Constitution says, hey, that power is reserved for Congress. Only Congress, the legislative branch, can raise the army up. And the president has to get the consent from Congress to even have an act of war. So the king, can he can just make that call regardless. So that's a distinction. The president can veto legislation. So can the king. But the president can be overturned, which leaves what Hamilton called wiggle room for a righteous law to be passed. So in other words, if the president vetoes it and the Senate overturns the veto by two-thirds of a vote, that law still goes into place. Where when the king vetoes something, no one can override his override. The president can grant pardons, except in cases of impeachment. The king can pardon anyone and he himself cannot be impeached. The president's foreign policy power is a little bit less than the king. The president can only make treaties with approval of the Senate. The king can make binding treaties as he sees fit. The POTUS can go out and negotiate a treaty, but he needs the assent or the consent of two-thirds of the Senate to ink the deal. Where the king of Great Britain has no such restriction. He can just enter into the various deal with foreign nations, and the public doesn't really have the ability to comment on or participate in any way. Uh, the country is basically left with the way he wants to deal with other nations. Another comparison, the president can only appoint officers with the approval of the Senate, where the king can grant whatever titles he likes with no approval at all. And finally, as it pertains to currency and commerce, the United States Congress has the full authority to deal with interstate commerce and currency. 
Everything pertaining to business and financial responsibilities goes through Congress. Congress is responsible to provide an outline of the laws that everyone has to follow, and they're supposed to be equally manifest against everyone. And as it relates to business and taxes and corporations, they're not supposed to pick winners and losers. It's supposed to be an equal playing field. And that's what Congress is supposed to do. And that's similar to England. The parliament establishes the law. The parliament also administers the law, which is different. In the U.S., the executive branch actually enforces the law. And then the judicial branch upholds it. Finally, finally, the POTUS has the power to appoint public ministers, like Supreme Court judges and all the officers established by law. But he's got to have approval of the Senate, where the king... He's got that same power, and he can even create new offices, but he doesn't have to get approval. He can just say somebody's uh, given nobility to somebody at his discretion without anybody else weighing in on it. So the Constitution's being debated, and there's these comparisons. So one of the proposals was to just disperse the executive power. Why not make it an office of the president and have two or three co-equals running the show? The anti-federalists were just really concerned about too much power in the hands of one person. Hamilton said, that's not a really good org chart. Um, you need to be able to give the president what he called energy so that he can do something that's essential to good government. So he, he says, look, how can you have a strong national defense or a sound administration of the law and protection of property rights if there's not one person in charge of that that's accountable to the people? So the anti-federalists said, look, wh what we should do is just have some version of an executive council. And Hamilton said, look, man, as you think that through, even just two people are bound to have their disagreements. One or both of them are going to have some selfish ambition left in them, or just a legitimate disagreement. And if you branch out to three or more functioning as the chief executive, you're going to make it easier to conceal the executive's faults and defects. I mean, imagine declaring war and blaming it on the three of us, after much consultation and debate, have decided to go and attack such and such country. Well, who are you going to fire if that was a bad idea? Naturally, with three or more functioning as the executive, no one person's held responsible. So whether it's two or three or more, if they have equal power, it can be really dangerous. For example, let's say they're at odds with each other during a war, and the executive basically just becomes one more deliberative body, like the legislature and like the courts. If all three are deliberative bodies, when decisions need to be made quickly for the benefit of the nation, you're in trouble. Deliberation in the legislative branch is good, and at the Supreme Court level where they have to banter with each other and then vote to make a determination, it's good. It, it helps prevent coercion by the majority. But the executive branch needs to execute on the laws passed by the legislature, and in the event of a war, a lack of decisiveness could result in being overrun by some other national power. So Hamilton reminds his readers of Roman history. He argues that when an executive can be a council of two or three, it's harder to determine which one needs to get replaced. Since the passing of the Constitution, there have been vigorous debates on what constitutes what Hamilton was calling energy or strength in the executive branch. Usually, the party that's out of power argues that the executive branch is too strong, and the party that's in power thinks the executive branch is too weak. So Hamilton argues that, look, since the United States president, unlike the English king, can be censored or booted from office at the next election, it's not that far away, or even removed from office before the next election if, his, if he's impeachable, you can impeach him, and that punishment mechanism is sufficient. So the pros 
outweigh the cons. The strong executive branch has its weaknesses. It creates a bunch of room for a divided nation, just like we have right now. But it was developed, and it was developed that way under a presumption of a bent by the person elected that they would be toward protecting freedom rights, not taking you away from them. And we're going to talk about that next time. Until then, be successful, be free, and be blessed. We'll see you then. Hi, I'm David Farah. Thank you for listening to my dad's podcast, The Barry Farah Show, Culture Shift. Click subscribe now to be sure you don't miss an episode. Share this podcast with your friends on social media and give The Barry Farah Show your five-star rating. Check out today's show notes below this episode and at theberryferrisshow.com. This podcast is also available in video format at The Barry Ferris Show on YouTube. See you next time.